Hey, thank you. Tomato, I think it's painfully obvious that nobody understands anything. And this is frustrating to me because as the smartest person in the world, (laughs) (laughs) oh God, okay, let's take this from a different direction. (laughs) Yeah. um, There's a lot of disagreement over how these crowdfunding platforms should be moderated. And there's been a lot of dismay about different choices that Ngozi and her team have made in terms of managing them. And without, uh, again, this funding structure is really interesting. And this is obviously a topic that has like broad applicability outside of CheckPlease. So this is something we could do. a special episode about. But yeah, I mean, these breaks and hiatuses, people got super angry about the fact that the comic never really updated regularly. And in fact, the way in which it was updated shifted from model to model over the course of the comic. My history with webcomics, which we've talked about before, is that some of them were on really tight schedules and some of them were just basically like, whenever the fucking creator got it together to like make a batch of comics. At the time, the time being the mid 2000s, it was just sort of seen like, you know, a rogue's no man's land of free content being dumped in people's laps whenever the creator could manage to get it together to dump it. And also it was all done for free. I think the creation of a funding structure around this comic really screwed up people's expectations. And I'm not saying people were always right to feel that way, but economics are complicated and the introduction of money into something that had traditionally been produced under a completely different kind of funding structure fucked a lot of people up. This turns into wank because constantly I would see people complaining about what is she doing? She's fucking around. Why isn't she posting strips? It's been like months and months. I'm losing interest. I'm losing patience. And I think that's completely okay. Lose patience. I mean, you want to know what? If Ngozi doesn't post new content for you and you lose patience and you stop following the comic, I I think that's the exchange. That's what she, you know, that's the cost of her not getting together to make the comic is that people lose interest and they wander away. That's the completed relationship right there. But, um... Over and over again, people would bring up the same complaints about the logistics of comic production and funding. And some of them specifically I agree with. Some of them specifically I think are just people who are entitled. Almost all of them are now like years old complaints that I'm tired of hearing about just because it's like, I don't know how much juice we can get out of this orange. The orange of like the person who donated a thousand dollars to the Kickstarter 
and had a bad experience. And here's the thing, I feel awful for that person. A thousand dollars is a lot of money that you could have donated to Joe Biden. But like, you know, it happened something like five years ago at this point. How many times are we going to effectively just like put it on a list of grievances? I don't think that helps that person. I think they probably feel personally betrayed for good reason. But it's also like, yeah, I don't know. I'm bored of hearing it. I think there's new things to complain about. I also like don't care that much about these things. They never struck me as particularly worthy of like endless iteration. I will say also that part of me now from the perspective I now have has a lot of sympathy for Ngozi being a new graduate of college and then a new graduate of her master's degree and trying to figure out how to navigate this world. Like, I don't think she did a great job, but also this was her first job basically out of school. Most people don't do amazing jobs their first time they're working out of school full time. And this is a tricky one. It's not one with the traditional model of how to be a good employee. Do you know what I mean? Or or how to be, I mean, it's not that she's an employee, she's self-employed obviously, but there's, there's not exactly a good model for that in the way there might be for like, well, I'm really good at getting coffee at the office. I didn't ever do that sort of thing. So whatever, you know what I'm saying? Um, I have some, some amount of sympathy for her, even though I understand the frustrations. At the same time, you pointed out, and I agree, that for the breaks and hiatuses, that these breaks actually led to huge bursts of fandom activity. And in fact, like, we often would message each other like, oh my God, can you believe like this happened? And then we would have these frenzy conversations about what we thought would come next. These hiatuses also served to create gaps where fandom activity occurred. And so in many ways, they were actually effective marketing, even though other people got frustrated. There are multiple multiple perspectives even on this. Yeah, and like I will also say that like yes, a lot of these hiatuses really did like build anticipation for the comic and like served as effective marketing tools. In a lot of ways they also were not so helpful because they created a lot of discourse in the fandom where there was a vacuum. We'll get to it, but like not too long after Ken Parson was introduced, there was a 6-month hiatus that was very easy to fill with wank. So like, you know, would people have spent as much time arguing about this one character? Would so much fervor have built around him if the comic had just like started moving away from that arc quickly instead of leaving six months for people to just be like, I don't know, I guess he's abusive or whatever. Like, I don't know. But I think that, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes the lack of content leads to people overvaluing and overcontemplating things and they have a lot of time and they start to get reckless and things can be both creatively extremely productive and you get like whipped into a frenzy but um sometimes frenzies are bad and uh yeah you lose control over the narrative if you're not producing any narrative we'll talk about that both maybe a little later in this conversation and then also as we kind of get into Kent Parson who by the way is coming up pretty soon get excited yeah actually we're we're not we're not too far so so I'm oh boy I seriously feel like I'm gonna need like 12 episodes to get through that um 
There's another discourse that you've listed here that I'm also very bored of, which are sort of nitpicky details that are shifted in the comic. Like, for example, this is not how the NCAA works. This is, you can't be in major juniors and then go into the NCAA. Like, this is not how the NHL is, et cetera. I mostly, with some limited exceptions, do not care about those discourses. Uh, because they are the price of admission for reading the comic. So you have to accept that this is how this world works and move on with your life. That's how I personally feel. Yeah, I mean, I think we've said this, or at least I've said it several times on this podcast. Like, you know what? There's no, I mean, part of telling a story is saying, what if it's like this phenomenon in the real world, except the fictional mechanism my story turns on is this difference? Like, that's the point of telling a story. People critiquing her research, it's like, um, you know, if it's new information, like if nobody's ever like explained how hockey works in this particular way before, like, yeah, I'd be interested. Like, I'm interested in those takes. I've seen a lot of good explainer posts that get into topics like, were check please functioning in the real NHL Jack's career or Kent's career or whatever probably would be viewed more like this. Like that's a take that I probably find really interesting because it can help me build up something in fan fiction. But just complaining that she like didn't do the research and got something wrong. I I mean, she also made up like four hockey teams that don't exist. Like, I don't know, what do you want? She made up a whole school that doesn't exist. Like there's ghosts in the story somewhere. It's, it's okay with me, but you know, I don't know. People can be annoyed about it if they want. I'm just kind of like over it. There are a couple of exceptions which have to do with things that happen during year three and four, where the way the NHL is figured is not in line with the way the hockey world is figured in years one and two. And that I can still probably wank about for a long time, but these sort of research oriented or detail oriented critiques. Yeah. I'm, I'm over it personally. Yeah. But that has to do with like a larger sort of like how the comic functions and the story that's being told rather than just like Jack shouldn't be here. Well, you want to know what? No, he shouldn't get him out of here. On that note, one point I would make is that, Oh, there's a lot of discourse over like which Shackley's characters are based on which real life hockey players. You know, I don't have that many conspiracy theories about this. Here's my take. I think a lot of them are melanges of, yes, very specific real life hockey players. I also feel like to a certain extent, most of them are types. You can sit here and argue over how much of Jack is Sidney Crosby and how much of him is Jonathan Taves, but the point is more that he is a specific type of Canadian hockey captain that is more broadly applicable than either of those two people individually, even though, yes, he obviously has some character traits that people read into those two actual people. I'm going to wade into this a little. Forgive me, everybody. TW, certain hockey player who people don't like for very good reasons, whose name is Patrick Kane. I'm going to talk about it briefly. I think it is extremely clear based on the landscape of hockey RPF that was in vogue at the time that Check Please was begun, that the two short-ish blonde 
wingers with soft hands and a light skating touch are at least partially based on Patrick Kane. The reason Patrick Kane became persona non grata on the internet in certain circles is because he was accused of sexual assault. He was not uh, indicted for it, but I personally think it's very possible that it happened, if not in this case, then in other circumstances. What frustrates me about this particular discourse is the inability to integrate both the fact that Patrick Kane was once a darling of a certain kind of fandom and was then no longer the darling of that fandom, except for certain fans who decided that they believed the police's case and that they, or, or before the police came out and said like, we don't think that this happened. They just believed him when he said he didn't think it happened um, or, or he, did, he said it didn't happen. Um, except for those rare circumstances, like most people moved away from that person because of these charges for very good reason, obviously, right? Like they're upsetting and not okay. Actually, there's been some like evo- like evolution in that case also. So I, I, I don't know, I don't know. I can't like weigh in here with, with a strong opinion. What really frustrated me was though, the, the inability to integrate both that fact and the fact that like at one point Biddy had a caner like, what is it called when you have a business <laughs> business in the front and party in the back mullet? I forgot the word for mullet. So, uh, so Patrick Kane, like, famously could not grow a beard. So instead of growing a playoff beard, he would grow a mullet. And at one point, Ngozi made art of Biddy with a caner mullet. And so there is just, like, no way that there's not some kind of connection between this very contentious figure of hockey who was a face of a franchise and now is less discussed in the circles of hockey that I sort of am adjacent to because of these events and Biddy. Like there's just no way I cannot connect them in some way in my mind because she literally drew him with like an iconic Patrick Kane situation. And what I found really frustrating was sometimes when discussing this is that people were like unable to engage with this idea at all, even though it was clearly true. So that is what I will say about this particular discourse that I will just forever kind of be frustrated by is like, both of those things are also true at once. This person impacted this piece of media in this way and also like might be a horrible person. Like that's true. So I don't know, this is something I find very frustrating. Meanwhile, yeah, I don't really care about how much of Moshkov is like Evgeny Malkin or what the fuck ever. Like he definitely is, but it doesn't matter. But it's also like in a completely different sense. I don't know why I said different because what I meant was in like the same sense. <laughs> I mean, Tater is a nod to all of the sort of Eastern European like foreign hockey players. It's like a trope. Like, yes, maybe Gino is the one who people who are in Check Please fandom would most often encounter. And maybe there are some particular reference points in Tater as a character. But it's also just like the kind of person you find on an NHL roster. This sort of like, ooh, sort of kooky, like not good talking all the time slightly stilted, gawky-looking foreigner is a type. Here's my real hot take. Yeah? Is that Peter has been publicly... has publicly approved of Vladimir Putin. Discuss. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, we're not going to meet Tater for a while. And just to be clear, thank God, because I hate him. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't like Tater. I don't really care about him. But here's the thing. I've read maybe one or two good potato fix. And yes, if you're interested, feel free to ask. Uh, more to the point. Um, yeah, I mean, all of these NHL, it's like basically, you know, picking and choosing which attributes and which sort of like general tropes around hockey the comic is choosing to incorporate to make like the hockey details seem believable. And you want to know what with hockey, this isn't so hard to do because it's such a regimented personality draining enterprise that by design mashes people into cookie cutters to shape them into what they need to be to like be part of this well-oiled operation it's like yeah i mean like the serious canadian hockey captain is a relatively common phenomenon the goofy fun eastern european dude is like not uncommon sprightly little hyper talented fellow with a problematic public persona even though yes patrick kane was like very publicly very egregiously accused and more than likely guilty of committing something really terrible in more general terms the sort of like plucky like puckish no pun intended smaller but hyper talented sort of like gifted young player who hasn't like settled into the league yet is also a type so uh and these narratives happen over and over and over again hockey maybe even more so than other sports like just does not allow personality I mean, not that sports are always heavy on personality, but like there's some basketball players out there with strong personalities, you know what I'm saying? And hockey is like- football players out there with strong personalities. Yeah, you can think about baseball. Baseball has some strong personalities too. So I, I don't know. I mean, less so than, than basketball and football, but but still, I don't know. So I don't know what it is about hockey. Well, we I have suspicions and we can get into it another time. But, um, but hockey does kind of like thrive on really archetypal narratives of sports personalities. And I don't mean that like individualized, I mean like archetypal figures, like, you know, like the kindly dad, you know, another, another hockey sort of archetype who's like a little nerdy and is an older player, but he's like really solid with the youngins on the team. You know, like this is another, another iteration. The reason I bring up the specifics the specific versions, the specific like case studies of these archetypes that I bring up is because like, I just cannot understand checklists except as in conversation with hockey RPF in part because some of Ngozi's friends were like deep in hockey RPF at the time the comic started. And because I had a friend in hockey RPF and was adjacent and read quite a, you know, read things that she recommended to me. Like I was also aware of sort of discourses happening in that fandom. And so I, just really believe that that it's these specific fan inversions of real people who have informed these particular kind of characters as iterations of these archetypes. 
Also, yeah, Kent Parson is very heavily based on Patrick Kane. Like, sorry, he just is. Um, I know and completely sympathize with people, including the creator, who possibly want to erase this association for very good reason. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like, I don't know what else to say. It seems like extremely plain yeah, to me. Me too. And that's just like the reality. I mean, here's the thing too. Like, I know I got into this a little bit when we were talking to Jovi about South Park stuff, but like, it's okay for creators to shift their approach. They make a critique for it sometimes, you know, like we're definitely gonna critique Ngozi's shifts of approach throughout the latter half of the comic. It's okay that she didn't know something about this man, used him as inspiration and now wants to shift. At the same time, I don't think we should erase it. So it's it's like a plea for flexibility, right, on both sides of both fans and creators. I also think like this whole sort of thing where people are like, no, he's not Patrick Kane, he's Tyler Sagan. And it's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I haven't read that much hockey RPF, but like I've read some and like they're constructed as the same type of player. Sure so like... Yeah, like there's there's multiple influences going on here. Like hockey fandom is its own discourse that has like myriad different things circulating in it. It's a lot more time than the the literally two points we had written about this on the outline. But I think, you know, all this talk about Kent and to a certain extent Biddy, whoever that is, um, kind of brings us to our kind of main wrapping around point is that something that I have actually noticed really recently, like this is a new phenomenon to me, is people hating characters in Check Please as if they were real people. So people who act as though Biddy is despicable as if he were like a knowable person who are active, who could like actively do harm to people rather than a text created by an author who has no agency and can't actually hurt you. And I feel like this is tied to a certain extent into a wider fandom discourse on whether or not concepts represented in fiction can like negatively impact actual people or real life in general. And the sort of bridge here is that people who, you know, attack Biddy or hate Biddy or especially with Kent Parson basically make the claim that like people who are fans of Kent Parson are in some way abuse apologists writ large they're perpetuating like a culture of abuse or a rape culture or something because they like a character who other people read as abusive and the mere existence of this character must be rejected in order to prevent perpetuating some kind of like culture of abuse it's the polar opposite of how I think about things. Not to say that like all fiction is good or that like harmful ideas can't exist in fiction. I definitely think that like 
yeah, obviously, like people who are racist, transphobic, homophobic, like misogynistic, abusive, et cetera, et cetera, obviously write fiction and sometimes like encode those viewpoints into the fiction that they're writing. But in general, a piece of fiction cannot in and of itself cause people to become abusive or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I guess the one thing I'll say, I feel like you've been exposed to this a lot lately. I have been exposed to it a lot over the years, particularly around, do you remember the wank over 221B Con 2014 or 2015? Can you remind me, but uh, is this somebody cried? Is my hero thinking of the right thing? Yeah, you are thinking of the right thing, but it's a little more complicated than that. Basically, there was, I believe, a BDSM panel at a Sherlock Con that happened outside of Atlanta in, I want to say, 2015. And a group of Sherlock fans who believe that certain kinds of... John Locke shipping were harmful because they perpetuated certain aspects of like rape culture and also BDSM generally had the potential to influence people to participate, to perpetuate abuse and like rape culture. And so they came to this panel on this topic at a Sherlock convention. And basically my understanding or my memory is that they called out panelists. One of the panelists on the panel was in fact herself an abuse or a rape survivor. She began crying. They taped this interaction, the tape circulated. I never personally saw it, but this exploded into a giant pan phantom wink at the time. I knew a ton of people either directly or uh, indirectly through people I knew who were involved in this on the side that I didn't agree with, which was basically perpetuating the concept that the mere depiction of certain things in fan fictions could cause those behaviors to become replicated in real life and therefore perpetuate like actual real life harms. So this is something that's been going on for a long time. I will say for some context, the podcast Fansplaining, which is my bizarre fixation, just put out an episode um, called Purity Culture 2020 that does touch on this topic as well. So if you want more background on the general situation, I think that is a great place to go to. But um, yeah, I feel like this is something that you have run into very recently. Well, I, I have because of it, right? But also, I would say it was happening in Czech, please, for the past several years. I mean, it kept happening. What's really interesting about Czech, please, is that it bridges the span of time where discourse, tone, and morality crusading, I guess is what I'll call it, um, were shifting aims. So where we see this abuse 
discussion around Kent Parson and where we see abuse apology and like promotion of abuse and so on as the major sort of focus. Now the major focus that I'm seeing in like, for example, it has much more to do with specifically pedophilia and age difference. Like that's like a major major thing. Um, By the way, when I say pedophilia, I don't mean sex with children. I mean fictional representations of sometimes teenagers having sex with each other, sometimes adults having sex with each other, but like there's an age difference. Like pedophilia in, as I have seen it evolve over the past couple of years in fandom does not actually usually refer to pedophilia, although it, I guess it can. By the way, I think we're all against pedophilia here, so please understand when I start talking about this sort of thing, I'm I'm not actually like a Nambla fan, okay? Um, just for the record. And so where we end up is this really complicated thing where, I mean, I've written a lot about this on my blog, so, you know, let me know and I'll send you the tag if you really want to know my evolution of thoughts over it over the past several years. But something I've really tried to come to terms with and am still continuously trying to think about are like, A, what actual societal things are being critiqued here? B, what are the beliefs about fiction that lead to these societal critiques? And then C, what is the actual goal of the people making these critiques? And where I've kind of ended up falling is that the goal is in fact not critiquing fiction. Like the goal of this podcast, right, is to critique OMG Checklist in a variety of ways and to also critique the fandom or kind of interrogate and question and look at the fandom in different ways. I actually do not think, although I thought for a while that this was the goal of these kinds of conversations in fandom, I like kind of no longer think that. I think it's much more about controlling behaviors of fans. I guess I can get into that or not, but when we look at this discussion of if you like Kent, you're an abuser. If you like Biddy, I don't know, usually it's not followed by like, you are an abuser, or you an abuse apologist. Yeah, so I would say we all, we're all sort of like familiar with the, you know, critiques about Kent Parson. Um, basically what I've seen a lot of lately are people who are just like, I hate Biddy, he sucks. And here's the thing, I hate Biddy, he sucks. Like, we know. But there's a difference between being frustrating with him as a character as he's written in a way that you want to critique and contextualize and complicate through the creation of fan works that like holistically examine like who he is and why he's this way and like how he functions within the story and like what the meaning of the story is and how that relates back to him as a character and people who are just like he sucks the fact that he did x y and z in the comic means he's a bad person Jack shouldn't be with him. I don't believe this, you know, Jack would really ever love him because somebody who's like this is awful. And it's like, well, I appreciate that you're interpreting within like the text that what he did was rude or whatever, but like, he's not actually a real person. So he didn't actually do anything rude. He was depicted doing something rude within a story. So if what you want to do is talk about why that's how you want to interpret this and what it means for him as a character that's different than fuck biddy he's an asshole because it's like well biddy is nobody biddy is nothing biddy is like a series of like lines and gestures 
And so the thing that kind of gets me about that, like, it's fine. Hate, hate whatever you hate and discuss it however you want. Like, I don't care. I do think it's worth thinking about why you dislike what you dislike and who you dislike, who you dislike. And, you know, just kind of examining that. I think we all need to do that. It's just part of being people thinking about who we are in the world. But like, sure, whatever. What I think is really interesting about that and relates to the Kent Parsons situation and kind of relates to this broader fandom phenomenon that I'm trying to talk about is it's not really about Biddy. I mean, it is about Biddy. It's about how you think Biddy sucks and that he eats those crackers and oh my God, can you believe he eats those crackers? Good Lord, right? Like, sure. But it's kind of also about shutting down other fans who have different opinions. Like, how could you like Biddy? He sucks. He's awful. How could you like Kent Parson? He's an abuser. How could you like this fanfic where two 17-year-olds have sex? You are like promoting pedophilia. How could you like this art where this person didn't draw a 40-year-old old enough so like actually it's child porn? Like, right? These are the kinds of conversations that are constantly happening that are not actually about media critique. They are about policing behavior, in my personal opinion, because if they were about media critique, the conversation would be about the media, not about the morality of the fans. The other thing I will just briefly say is like, shocker, everybody, fiction does impact reality. And guess what? Reality impacts fiction. Fiction exists because of the system we're all in. Like if we want to talk about discourses and how we're reacting to the systems that create us and inform us, fiction is how we do that. Fiction offers us a mirror to examine society through. And so sometimes people are going to talk about things that are distasteful. And you can totally dislike things or even think things are immoral. It does not actually mean that they are promoting the immorality. And you can't necessarily know that just by looking at like a pairing or something. I think you can absolutely critique these things and question them and say like, oh, if are we promoting like harmful ideas in this fic? Like, let's examine it. But to wholesale say you can never discuss XYZ topic is really troubling to me in part because like, guess what? Cultures of silence are how abuse happened, guys. Sorry, that's just the reality. And by the way, like, you can disagree with me and I would love to have conversations about it. That's fine. If we think about how fiction impacts real life, I think you also have to seriously and pragmatically consider the power that fandom has. If you are thinking about the kind of power that media has on most of society, let's take the United States, that's where I'm located, where I'm most familiar with. Fandom has a particular kind of impact, sure. It doesn't have the same kind of impact, the same kind of money behind it, the same kind of institutional power or artistic legitimacy as like Game of Thrones, which by the way, is like a problematic TV show. It's not one I've watched, but I know all about how it's problematic. The internet told me. And so to equate like the impact of a piece of fiction that is given a certain kind of artistic legitimacy and economic funding that leads to a certain kind of artistic investment by general populace in a way that impacts a lot of people and what they're talking about is substantively different than a piece of fan fiction. Here's my hot take. I agree with Secret. A piece of fiction depicting something problematic does not turn the person reading it into an abuser, into a rapist, into whatever. The thing that can turn someone, I guess, into those things, I am not qualified to unpack, but I would suggest it has a lot more to do with like the societal 
mores they were raised with, their particular relationship to power, their inability to recognize the humanity of others. And those things don't happen because of fiction. Fiction can explore those things. Fiction can portray those things. Fiction can also be a reaction to those things. Like this is a really old chestnut, but like surprise, much like in this John Locke panel, sometimes when people write about problematic things, it's because they've experienced them and they're dealing with them. There's lots and lots of reasons that someone might engage. Sometimes people just think things are hot. And you know why people think things are hot? Usually because of the society that they were raised in. And there's something taboo or interesting or like, strange about it that they want to explore in an erotic way. That's also fine. That's my personal opinion. Obviously, there are nuances to every topic, and there are abusive people in fandom who use fandom to do abusive things. I won't deny that. But simply the topic of abuse ever being raised is not itself enough to make someone abusive. And furthermore, because someone had an argument with someone in a comic, and you may interpret that as abusive, doesn't actually make your reading more correct than someone who sees that same argument and doesn't see them as abusive. And both of those things can coexist. Like, I don't think Kent Parson is abusive, but if you think he is, like, okay, write a fanfic about it. That's fine. We actually can coexist and we're not harming each other by having different interpretations of the same multifaceted argument. As long as in real life, I'm not going out and abusing people and you're not going out and abusing people and we're not abusing each other online. And I bring this up in part, okay, I'm almost done, I swear. I've been like checking out It Fandom on and off for let's say six months online. And in that time I have seen like seven or eight people be bullied offline for like doing something problematic in their fan fiction, which is usually something that's like, you have said teenagers had sex. Like it's really, really exaggerated and strange to me. Over and over again, I have to ask like, what is the point of screaming at people? And over and over again, I don't actually think it's to protect children. And I don't actually think it's to have conversations about media. I think it's to get power over someone else. And so like, that's worthy of examining when we're thinking about how discourse and power tie. Okay, those are all my very controversial opinions that I didn't explain in the most organized way, but thank you. Well, unfortunately, I agree with the vast majority of what you've just said. And I think reiterating much of it would probably just be like, you know, going in circles. What I will say about getting power over people is that fandom is a group of people who collectively in society have very little power. Over and over again, it has basically been demonstrated that fandom is largely a queer female enterprise. That is not to say that there are no cis straight men in the part of fandom that we occupy, but they are vastly the minority, if not entirely non-existent on every survey that has been done. There are also many people of color in fandom who have, even within fandom, long been like underrepresented or misrepresented. I'm not saying this makes bullying okay, but you can absolutely understand why within a somewhat self-contained subculture, people whose lives have largely been shaped by marginalization suddenly want to eke out their own power structures in places where they're suddenly able to. 
again, I'm not saying this makes bullying somebody off the internet okay. It obviously doesn't. But if you've spent your entire life having it demonstrated to you over and over again that you have, in the grand scheme of things, very little potential and very little agency, if you suddenly find yourself in a place where that's not the case, you may in fact attempt to rectify it by play acting what you've had done to you in other venues. This is further complicated by the fact that fandom is basically, you know, the way that we do fandom is basically like a re- it's a resistance activity. We talked about this when we talked to Jovi and we've brought it up before. It's basically taking something that somebody else made. It's taking an extant text and saying, I am not beholden to what is written in this text. And Check Please is obviously a weird type of fandom because it came effectively from a grassroots context developed by a young Black woman who, in and of herself, did not necessarily wield the kind of power that the powers that be typically have over their fandoms. But in general... The vast majority of the things that people are making transformative works and like gay fan works about are things that are corporate owned media and basically taking them and saying, fuck your corporate owned media. I'm going to take whatever I feel like out of this package and do whatever I want with it and wrest control of authorship over this text is effectively a way of saying fuck you to systems that have marginalized the people who are doing this activity. Is this a little bit simplistic? Yes, like a lot of things we've said on this episode over the and over the course of this podcast. Yes, obviously this is like a much broader broader topic with like a lot of scholarship behind it and it's way more complicated and unwieldy than it sounds. But at the heart of it, that's basically what's going on here. Yeah, I don't know if you come to this venue specifically to try to develop your own agency. It's highly possible that somebody might get carried away in that enterprise. That doesn't make it all right but it does make it easy to understand why it happens. And here's the thing, like I have my own intersection of identities which lead to a particular experience and a limited perspective, obviously, right? Like this is just the caveat that goes into before anyone says anything about anything. It's also true for me, like I exist in the world in a particular way and therefore I have a particular perspective informed by that experience. What I will say is that for me, this relates to the conversation we were having about homonormativity versus queerness. For me, reenacting systems of power in ways that do not actually help protect the people who are allegedly being protected, i.e. in this particular case, when it comes to pedophilia, like children being hurt, or if you think about Kent Parson and abuse apologia, like sort of people who have experienced abuse, recreating systems of power which rely on manipulation or bullying or shaming 
like actually don't do anything to liberate us as people from those systems. And so even though I find it understandable, I also find it like both frustrating and depressing that moral policing is part of this space of resistance, even though I do understand why. I think there's a really big difference between looking at a person with a particular pattern of behavior that's really troubling and saying like, hey, this person is an abuser and we should be aware of that. Like, you know, my er problematic fandom figure who I always think of is Andy Then Fiction, who is a really troubling character. That That's like much more than we can talk about, but you know, look him up, ask me about him. I don't want to qualify it as a real abuser. That that person is an abuser. He's an abuser who whose reputation precedes him now. And so people like discuss him when he enters a fandom and try to protect people from him and his abusive behavior, which involves fandom activity as part of that abuse. Someone who's thinking about systems of power in whatever way in their like maybe not subversive fanfic where they don't question the systems of power like so radically. I think it's a little depressing that my perspective of what is sort of liberatory and what can be really radical about fandom spaces is not necessarily widely shared because obviously I have this perspective that's just mine and that's what I think is liberatory. Uh, And instead things that feel liberatory to people are in fact things that I think are recreating systems of power that I think are troubling. What if everything we've talked about here is the weirdest discourse? Oh, definitely the pie thing. What, if anything, do you think we're likely to expand into its own episode? I'm still really interested in the slipperiness between fiction and reality and Biddy and Kent being treated as if they're people. I know I just rambled for like 40 minutes about it, but I think there's more to explore there. I think we're going to ultimately have to do an episode or maybe a series of episodes on Kent Parson, like... Oh, yeah. Particularly, I mean, beyond just what is in the text, because the discourse around this one character has so pervasively shaped not just the fandom, but also I think the text itself. Yeah, I feel like it's inevitable that we'll we'll end up talking about that. And yeah, I forget what else we talked about, you know... What's on our outline? I already closed it. I guess there's more to discuss when we're thinking about the way the fandom approaches things at large. Like for me, these things kind of all go together. So when I say things like, we should talk about the slipperiness of fiction and reality, Kent Parson is totally part of that. And things like you're erasing, you know, Mainers if you don't acknowledge Dex's lobster (laughs) background or something. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm being flippant. But, you know, I think that that's worthy of, of thinking about. As we were doing this episode, I did literally think to myself, it's so interesting that all of these discourses are entirely about, like, Kent Jack Biddy and, like, the broader circulation around them and their interrelationships. I know that there is wink around like Dex and Nursey. I think partly I'm just like, it's just like, it's, it's not my shit, man, until they get written in MFA verse. But I think one thing that would be really productive to do a special episode about is basically like the funding structures in fandom, how incredibly complicated the way that this comic shifted from a free like goof off project into a business model is, I I don't know, it's like a a big topic that I think somebody should talk about. 
we could do an episode, as you said at the beginning, about every single topic on this podcast. So listeners, I guess, let us know what you want to hear us rant about. You know, I think we're going to have to see like where our conversations go as we start to get into like years three and four eventually. But um, the power dynamics inherent in the relationship between Jack and Biddy is a big thing that for whatever reason, often gets skirted. And I think breaking down that is probably worth doing as well. I have been spending my entire time in check, please, writing about it, I feel like, basically. Oh, I mean, like, me too, but... Yeah, of course. Off of FFA, the discourse about it gets kind of skirted. It does. This is another topic that I wonder if Check Please had been started or gotten popular a couple of years later. Its place within the sort of anti-discourse, as it were, were slightly different. I wonder whether it would have been more addressed. Um, and I feel kind of sure that it would have been. We'll never know, but we should talk about it. Well, I look forward to talking about it on future special episodes and also future podcast episodes. Once again, thanks to everybody who made suggestions or voted in our poll and also to Queer of Cups for helping us juice up our our discourses. And uh, yeah, next next time on Check Displeased, we are going to be breaking into year two. Biddy is a sophomore. How exciting for him, you know? We'll be talking about comic 2.1, Moved In. I've been secret. Yeah, you can find me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr. And I'm familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. I'm really excited to explore the landscape of Biddy's severe post-concussion syndrome as we go through the next three years of the comic. Uh, you can listen to us do that at checkdisplease.tumblr.com on Spotify or on Podbean. Yeah, I mean, this is the year of the comic when Jack and Biddy start fisting each other. So it's just, it's gonna, okay. Now I'm just picturing Jack, like, he doesn't really understand anything about Foucault, but someone told him once about Foucault's fisting situation, and he, like, tries to bring it up because Biddy Shirley has discussed Foucault in his American Studies courses. However, what he doesn't realize is that Biddy does not give one shit about any of the classes he's ever taken, so he doesn't know who Foucault is. And so this conversation doesn't go that well. But luckily by that point, Jack's four fingers in, so works out for them. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I feel like Jack had to have read Foucault in some sort of, like, intro to, like, historical methodology class or some shit like that. Oh, definitely. But I do think that Jack is on the side of history, which is like, ugh, Foucault, he wasn't really a historian, and his analysis was so messy. No, he wasn't really a historian is the thing. But, like, I mean, you have to, like, pin some postmodern text. Um, you know what? I don't need to get into it. Anyway, it's been... I don't want to either. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, see you next time. This is probably where the music is playing out. Very good.
Man, I don't know. Maybe we have Russian listeners. Probably cut that out. 